0: more special as we have the Centre for Criminology's very own Professor Ian Loder delivering the lecture. Ian Loder is Professor of Criminology and Professorial Fellow of All Souls College at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts. Ian arrived in Oxford in 2005 having previously taught at Keele and the University of Edinburgh. Ian has published extensively on policing, private security, public sensibilities towards crime, penal policy and culture. Over the last few years, Ian has focused on exploring the politics of crime and the public roles of criminology, the first strand of which was brought together in his book called Public Criminology. The next stage of the project focuses on ideologies and crime control. And for the current academic year, Ian has been awarded a mid-career fellowship by the Independent Social Research Foundation to pursue this research, titled In Search of Better Politics of Crime, which feels all the more prescient and indeed necessary this week. (coughs) Today's lecture is Crime, Order and the Two Faces of Conservatism, and without further ado, I'll hand you over to Ian.
1: Thank you very much, (laughs) Alba. Um, thank you for that. Um, well, um, it's a great, um, great honour to be here, um, even though I spend most of my time here, um, <laughs> and, and to be delivering this um, final lecture. Um, and to so the usual anxieties that attend these occasions, like will you be able to string together a coherent argument and all those things, um, I've managed to add an additional three of, of my own. Um, so I just want to preface what I want to say by those. The first is, as, as Alper just kindly pointed out... Um, this, this lecture is part of a wider project which I'm engaged in over the course of the year. Um, so I've not suddenly developed an interest in conservatism per se. Conservatism is one of the places on the map of political ideologies that I'm going to spend the year travelling um, around. And the assumption that kind of guides this project um, is that one of the things that gives um, crime control its kind of emotional charge, one of, the th- one of the reasons that it kind of matters to us, one of the reasons why... The question of crime is so difficult to reduce simply to questions of what works and what's effective is because when people come at that question or those series of questions, they do so from a particular place on the ideological map and their location on that place um, changes the ways in which they think about the topic. The kinds of meaning and priority they give to certain significant concepts—order, authority, legitimacy, the state, rights, and so on—and so forth. The kinds of institutions they think one might mobilise to um, to address crime, and the so on, and so on. So the project is, in a sense, an attempt to kind of trace out and map um, those um, connections. It also has this Ponzi title, as has um, just um, alluded to, called "In Search of Better Policies of Crime." At the starting assumption for which is. That, th- that how we might think about that project, um, that it requires not merely better information about how criminal justice institutions work or do not work, but also requires um, new and better ideas. So my justification for this kind of tour of the political landscape is in part an attempt to try and mine resources for thinking about that um, <coughs> wider um, project. Now, on good days... Uh, this all seems important and worthwhile and a great thing to be spending this part, bit of my life on. Um, on bad days, um, it seems hopelessly ambitious and ridiculous, and I wonder why I even bothered. Um, so the additional anxiety that attends this talk, because it's the first outing the project has had, um, is that my attempts to make sense of this um, will be a test case for whether I can do it um, um, anywhere else. Right. Now, um, having said that, there's the, the anxiety number two is that conservatism presents particular kinds of challenges um, for trying to do this, which I'll come on to um, in a minute. Um, I also feel a a kind of double outsider to the task. So I'll fess up at the beginning that I never thought of myself as a conservative. Um, More importantly for this purpose, I'm not a political theorist. Um, So much of the time I feel myself scrambling around in unknown territory Um, without the requisite skills for being able to navigate um, effectively or securely. Um, My hope is that the territory I think I'm trying to situate myself in is that underexplored terrain at the boundary between criminology and political theory. So if this project goes half well I will at least manage to have illuminated some of that um, territory. Okay, the third anxiety um, was occasioned by the traumatic events of Tuesday. Um, So my worry now is what I'm about to say for the next 45 minutes or so will be heard and interpreted um, through the lens of Donald Trump's triumph um, as President-elect of the United States. And I was joking with Karen yesterday that I could have just spent the day rewriting it. Um, um, I I kind of hope that doesn't happen, um, not least because this paper was not written with that um, outcome in mind. Um, Nor do I think it will greatly help um, to understand what's gone on, say for one or two reasons I'll come back to. Um, In fact there's another bit of this emerging book on populism and technocracy which I think rather still tangentially gets at the question of what's going on um, in that dimension of contemporary um, politics. So I rather rather hope that we don't um, (laughs) um, re-read everything I'm about to say through that particular prism tempting um, that it may be. The slight qualification to that um, goes something like this. I think the the, the scary and dangerous world that we now um, appear to be living in um, creates all kinds of responsibilities for us as, as um, academics and thinkers and researchers and writers and the border Criminologies blog that was posted yesterday kind of articulated some of that. One of those tasks, it seems to me, one of our tasks in this world is to try and understand what mix or what, something about the social worlds, the cluster of sensibilities, the accumulation of fears and fantasies that could lead millions of people to put a cross next to the name Donald Trump. (laughs) And some of those people are just angry white men. Um, Some of them were women. Some of them were Hispanics. Some of them were Muslims. Um, And it seems to be beholden to us to try and understand that worldview and that sensibility. And in a sense, I think what I'm trying to do rather closer to home um, in relation to conservatism is something akin um, to that. Right, I can start now. Um, I think it's safe to say that during the... This is a 50th anniversary lecture. During the 50 years that this centre has been in existence in one form or another, um, conservatism has been this country's dominant political tradition. Um, I think one can also safely say that conservatism has been one of the political traditions that has most fully animated and contributed to the rise of a certain kind of emotive and... um, heated up um, law and order politics. It is a cliché of British politics to say that law and order or crime and punishment are somehow naturally conservative issues, by which is usually meant some version of the claim that somehow voters implicitly trust the conservatives to know what to do about crime, to be tough on it, to back the police, to be tough on offenders, to sympathise with victims, and so on and so forth. And some of the most influential accounts of the politics of crime over the last three or four decades, if you think of Stuart Hall et Police and the Crisis or The Culture of Control or some of Pat O'Malley's work, have attended to the ways in which, in a sense, crime got wrapped up with the kind of remaking and resurgence of a certain kind of um, conservative um, politics. Now, despite that, um, I think it's also the case that one is hard-pressed to think of many influential conservative writers on crime. And the fact that James Q. Wilson will pop up once or twice in the next 45 minutes um, gets so frequently mentioned in this context is because to some extent he stands as the exception. I think it's also true to say, especially in this country, less so in the States, but also to some extent in the States, that there is no vibrant tradition or paradigm of conservative criminology to which one can point to or analyse or identify. Um, And indeed, um, most provocatively, you could say that conservatism kind of functions as criminology's other. In other words, it's a kind of external, emotive, common sense about crime, which criminology kind of sets itself the task of demystifying and seeking to um, contest. Now, I think it's an interesting question, why that antagonistic relationship might well have developed, I think one plausible answer to it is that liberalism... Sorry, criminology is a kind of creature of Enlightenment liberalism. It sees as one of its constituting tasks, putting reason to use in the service of social betterment, whereas, as we shall see, conservatism in many ways is best understood as a counter-Enlightenment tradition, one that refuses to be seduced by the idea that we're always capable of making social and moral progress. But nonetheless, the result, I think, is that conservatism has become one of criminology's boo words. It gets bounded around as if we all somehow know what it means, we all know what's wrong with it, and we all know we need to spend no serious time thinking um, about it. That Therefore, one struggles in criminology, I think, to find many or indeed any serious or systematic or sympathetic accounts of what conservatism actually is and the ways in which it operates in our field, still less why some of its ideas and concepts and claims can resonate so powerfully among so many of our co-citizens. So my aim for the next however long, um, keep an eye on the time because I haven't got any kind, any, any kind of timekeeper near me, um, um, is to offer um, some kind of rational reconstruction of... Um, what it is to be a conservative and what kinds of arguments and beliefs and values and claims have been marshaled around the crime question um, by people who travel under that label. And I want to do this with an, an orientation which is, in the first instance, anthropological, by which I mean I try and want to try and recover and clarify from the inside what it means to be a conservative and what a conservative take on crime looks like with a view to offering something that might look like a kind of best-case account of that position, one that a fully committed Conservative would at least recognise, if not fully agree with, as well as to trying to understand its emotional um, and um, cultural appeal and engage in some kind of dialogue with its central claims. Now, um, this task is, um, is not without its challenges, um, three of which I just want to mention um, by way of um, finalising this extended introduction. Um, The first of this is the claim um, pressed by many um, who think of themselves as conservatives that conservatism isn't really an ideology at all. Um, The idea here is not simply that conservatism lacks the kind of founding texts and authors that you would find in liberalism, for example, but to try and reduce conservatism to a set of abstract principles and concepts Is in some sense to distort it and therefore to fail to understand it. On this view, conservatism is a kind of sensibility, a a kind of way of being in the world. It's just the the disposition of those who are not minded to surrender a known good for some kind of unknown better. Now, I think one fully has to grasp that this kind of what you might think of as this kind of aesthetic dimension of conservatism is part of what that tradition means, while also remembering that it has. Um, an attendant political character. In other words, what conservatism does offer, among other things, is a very distinctive account of the activity and tasks of governing and by extension of trying to govern crime. It necessarily has a kind of ideological map which enables people who think of themselves as conservatives to know what what they approve of and disapprove of, who their friends are, who their enemies are and what direction they want society to go or not to go and so on and so forth. And conservatism has to be analysed in those terms, as an ideology. The second challenge, pressed often by conservatism's critics, is that conservatism is little more than the ideology or political programme of (coughs) privileged groups trying to cling to their power and privileges. On this view, conservative ideas, now now in inverted commas, are typically pressed in bad faith. They are the motivated justifications of people who are trying to cling to their privilege. Therefore what is required in analysing conservative ideas is some attention to the context out of which they emerge. And not so much the analysis of ideology in the terms that I'm trying to present here but a kind of ideology critique in the kind of critical theory sense of that term. In other words a kind of unmasking of those claims to uh, uh, an unmasking of those ideas and their relationship to existing structures of power and inequality. Now, um, I, I kind of have some sympathy with that view. I think it's the, I think the view, the idea, for example, that equality is natural, is more likely to appeal to people who benefit from existing distributions of society's benefits and burdens than those who are the, the bottom end of that distribution. But I think that connection between interest and ideas is not unique to conservatism. Um, and I also think we, that reducing conservatism to self-interest. Um, in those ways, um, should not free us of the burden of actually trying to examine conservative claims about the world, the kinds of questions they pose, the answers they give, and, as importantly, why they appeal not only to the, the, um, the entitled and the privileged, but to significant proportions of the downtrodden, the fearful, the fatalistic, um, and so on. That's challenge two. Challenge three. Challenge um, What conservatism? Which conservatism are you talking about? Um, The question here um, is is a kind of question about particularity, a question about whether when trying to understand something called conservatism, there is some kind of um, entity that you can grasp that has travelled through time and across jurisdictions, or whether you're really confronted with analysing particular kind of plural and multiple conservatisms. And that challenge is particularly acute in relation to conservatism precisely because, as I will come clear, it's a kind of philosophy of attachment to place. It always has a kind of rootedness in particular locations. Um, no one, as Muller recently put it, has ever chanted, "Conservatives of all nations unite. So, um, so in analysing conservatism, one needs, I think, to attend to its particular kind of historical rootedness while also being alive to the kinds of family resemblances that might exist between um, different kinds of conservatisms. Now, my way of um, solving this problem and putting some boundaries about what I'm attempting to do is to make the principal focus of my analysis that tradition of sceptical and British and, by to some extent, um, European conservatism, and to make that my focus and to think about its connections to and points of departure from the allied traditions with which it has travelled in recent years, notably American neoconservatism and um, neoliberalism. So um, what follows is my attempt to give a kind of plausible rendition of um, that that, that sceptical British conservative worldview and what it has to say about questions of crime and punishment. Um, It's not the only way that you could think about conservative takes on crime, Um, but it seems to me to be a plausible one and one that deserves more serious scrutiny and attention than it typically is received within criminology. Um, The argument, in sum, for those of you who like to drop off and reappear at the end, um, is this, that one finds in that tradition... um, This is too crude, I don't know how committed I am to this. um, ..both a source of penal aggravation and a source of penal restraint, by which I mean a kind of moralistic conception of crime and an attendant conception of order which is um, uh, concerned with ultimately the the reassertion of sovereign um, authority and control. But also at the same time a kind of scepticism towards the state that always leaves conservatives being... um, uh, reticent and ambivalent about certain practices of punishment and in the end seeking to find non-penal forms of socialisation and social regulation. Um, And for the next 40 minutes or so I'm going to try and elaborate on all that. Um, Right. Um, It's become um, a kind of orthodoxy of the literature on the politics of crime to say something along the following lines. um, That the Thank you. <laughs> um, to say something along the following lines, um, the, 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 the rise and resurgence of conservative politics in the 1970s had something to do with the break that it made not only with a general post-war consensus about economic and social governance, but a more particular um, liberal consensus about the management and governance of crime, which kind of held that crime was an issue to be managed off the political stage by experts, by, by senior practitioners, by government officials without much public um, uh, fuss, as it were. The break with that tradition enabled effectively conservative politicians to tap into and articulate certain um, public fears and anxieties about rising levels of crime and to plug them into a wider narrative about the crisis of social authority, about the crisis of government, about questions of race and so on and so forth. That much is familiar to anyone who's ever read Policing the Crisis, for example. Um, now, much of the analysis of that tends to focus as, uh, either on the kind of consequences of that um, in terms of what then happened in terms of criminal justice politics or on its kind of electoral dividends, the ways in which conservative conservative party used crime, as it were, to lever working-class um, support. But I think that claim is, al- is also worth trying to situate conceptually By which I mean that there is something about um, the kind of morphology or architecture of conservative ideology that means it is able to capitalise on and have things to say about crime that flow from its conceptual ordering and in particular from the centrality of the concepts of order and stability to its general world view. This makes conservatism... um, kind of at ease when questions of crime are under discussion in a way that liberals and social democrats, I think, are just never quite at ease. And it means that they have a kind of, uh, for conceptual as well as political reasons, have a capacity to kind of get on the front foot, to be attuned to the uses of fear, to be able to kind of very easily tell a story about crime that can kind of connect with broader questions about social discipline, breakdown, governmental authority um, and the like. And I want to elaborate on that claim. Now, perhaps the best way into that is to think about the crisis of rehabilitation of the mid to late 1970s, um, as um, as is well known, um, some version of the rehabilitative ideal or what David Garland calls penal welfarism as, as, had become by the mid-1970s a kind of governing orthodoxy of US and UK criminal justice policy, the organising rationale of the system. And it came under both a critique of a kind of technocratic kind, no, none of these programmes appear to work in the 1970s, as well as a, a liberal critique focused on questions of due process, suspects' rights, um, the control of discretion and so on and so forth. But there also emerged at that time a distinctive conservative version of the critique of rehabilitation um, which largely um, was launched from (laughs) outside the system and its governing premises and um, which challenged in a wholesale way all the assumptions that held that view of what crime management were about um, together. And there are three central claims that I just briefly want to to articulate. The first is the kind of critique of the idea that crime should be considered a kind of presenting system of other problems, whether they be sociological or... whether they be social or psychological, and therefore we need principally of some kind of um, remedial treatment or intervention. On the grounds that what this does is deny the responsibility and moral agency of offenders and their need to account for what they have done. And, of course, this went alongside and kind of married very closely with a kind of broader but connected account, a critique of the welfare state in its capacity to generate perverse outcomes, welfare dependency, to similarly not take account of individual responsibility and the uh, like. Secondly, the, I think that the rehabilitation, at least in that kind of grand organising rationale for the system terms, struck conservatives as a kind of, um, as resting on the unwarranted assumption that you can use government to kind of engineer better outcomes. It was a kind of example of governmental overreach of what Michael Oakeshott calls rationalism in politics. And it also rested on a series of erroneous assumptions about the basically benign nature of human impulses and the kind of what conservatives talk to be the naive hope that you could use state intervention of various kinds to straighten what Kant once called the crooked timber of humanity. And this required, thirdly, um, a kind of reckoning with certain kinds of realities about human behaviour and its resistant to um, mo- manipulation, which is where James Q. Wilson enters our story. Because in that very influential book, originally published in 1975, starts with the then arresting claim that public policies need to be designed according to what he called a clear and sober understanding of human nature – and in case anyone was in any doubts, what he meant by that, he closed the book, two hundred old pages later, with this: "Wicked people exist." I mean, this has now become um, fairly well known. Nothing avails, but you can you can read it behind you. This was nothing short of a kind of tearing up of um, of fifty or so years of both criminological orthodoxy. Um, and a large amount of kind of orthodox and official assumptions about crime and its causes and what we need to do about it. And what it ushered in was both a very different conception of how we ought to think about crime and a rather different conception of the kinds of instruments that are required if we are to adequately respond to it. Right, um, Now, conservatives are often derided by their critics um, for moralising about crime. Um, I think if you're a conservative, this charge makes no sense Um, because for conservatives, crime simply is a moral issue and to forget about or neglect that fact is just to ignore something constitutive about the nature of crime, that it involves some kind of crossing of a line between right and wrong. I also think that helps to explain... um, further explain Conservatism's rather difficult and antagonistic relationship both with criminology in particular and social science in general because conservatives have a distaste for forms of causal explanation of crime which appear to efface individual responsibility, condone bad behaviour, complicate the question of punishment, surround the offender, as Margaret Thatcher once nicely put it, with a fog of excuses... I think conservatives are also, or at least there is a conservative sensibility, which is also rather offended or at least bemused by the kind of criminological posture in relation to crime, which has the capacity to step back and just think in rather distant and analytical ways about crime as a social problem. And and I know this because I've encountered it in TV studios and various other places, where the offence that's being given by doing that is not what you have to say but the mere fact that you can think about crime in such abstracted, rationalistic, seemingly morally indifferent um, ways. Now, the reason for mentioning it, I think, is that it's the capacity to think about crime as a moral problem, which also enables conservatives to, as it were, get on the front foot to be assertive, to have things to say that connect with public sentiment in relationship to broader public discourse, a point I'll come back to. Um, shortly so what elements of the conservative story about crime enable it to do that let me briefly run through three of them first um, a critique um, of structural explanations of crime and why it happens and why it might go up and down Um, I've written here disconnecting crime and social justice that's a mistake uh, because no conservative would think of of what they're doing in quite those terms Um, in other words, a critique of the idea that crime is somehow a product of poverty, of inequality, of unemployment. Um, one finds this, um, um, the, whole, the, the whole point that James Q. Wilson made in thinking about crime, about the paradox of crime in the 60s being the coexistence of rising crime and rising living standards um, was, a, was a kind of case in point. And there is both a kind of, there's a kind of empirical objection that gets made to this, but also a basic, a more basic objection that... that um, thinking about crime in those terms is to some extent to make some kind of um, category mistake. (coughs) Secondly, in the conservative tale, if crime is about poverty at all, it's about moral poverty. The starting axiom of uh, of a kind of conservative account of human nature is that left to our own devices, without our impulses being controlled and regulated, human beings will on the whole behave badly. (laughs) They therefore need to be taught, to be instructed, to have their impulses controlled, and so on and so forth. And the story about the rising levels of crime in the second half of the 20th century for conservatives is therefore principally a cultural and moral one, not an economic and social one. It's about what James Q. Wilson called the triumph of self-expression. It's about the dis- dismembered families. It's about the erosion of discipline. It's about the, 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 the triumph of rights over entitlements and so on and so forth. And this relates thirdly, and I'll come back to this much more at the end, to an important aspect of the cause of this, which isn't ultimately about police and punishment, but is about the collapse or failure of certain kinds of agencies of social and moral instruction in civil society. It's about the failure of churches, parents, teachers, and others to provide um, the, the appropriate forms of moral instruction. Um, Inculcating responsibility and restraint now i 'll come back to that um, at the end, um, but just two points about about the kind of broader cultural resonance of that I, I, what are they one okay firstly, I think what conser- what this kind of conservative story does about crime in broader public discourse did was kind of was kind of license and inject into into discussions of crime. Um, a certain kind of emotionality. In other words, it ca- it, um, in a way that, that, that all forms of liberalism and social democracy um, cannot do. In other words, it's said um, that it's perfectly OK um, or, or that we should stop thinking about crime just in the kind of arid language of cost-benefit or um, using abstract theories of social causation, but instead it's perfectly proper and legitimate to treat crime as an occasion for certain kinds of emotional utterances, for thinking about indignation, blame, censure, stigma and the like, and for thinking about our our solutions to crime using a language of responsibility, virtue, duty and so on and so forth. And it's that moralising move that gives conservative ideology the capacity to tap into a certain strand of popular sentiment about these issues. Secondly, it also means it's, it becomes very easy for conservatives to speak about crime in a kind of idiom of common sense, which, which can kind of say, we are saying things that are just obviously, things that you obviously know to be true. We are on your side. We are here to speak for the concerns of the silent majority against the indifference of experts and elites and so on and so forth. Hence this, um, this quote that I found from Norman Tebbit in 1986, which is on the deep behind me, Um, and those of you who have been paying any attention will notice that Theresa May said something extremely similar both about this and about migration um, in her first conference speech as Conservative leader um, several weeks ago. How am I doing? Fine. Okay. So, um, conservatism, if you like, as it were, locates crime as a kind of moral question that is a product of certain kinds of failures of a web of institutions in civil society. And I'll come back to that point in the end, because I think it matters. Um, But this does not detract conservatives from the idea that when crime is rising, that it calls for the firm hand of sovereign authority (coughs) and the reassertion of control and discipline. And there seem to me to be two core components of conservative ideology – which enable it to grasp the importance of that task. Firstly, an account of the primary responsibilities of the state. And secondly, the dominant place that order and a particular conception of order has within the conservative um, world view. So let me take each of those things in turn. Um, The aforementioned Michael Oakeshott um, thinks about governing, as he puts it, as a specific and limited form of activity which he thinks should be concerned with attending to society's arrangements in order to try to regulate conflict and ensure peaceable behaviour. And that theme echoes throughout conservative philosophy, the idea that government is a kind of limited task and that its principal job is not endless social improvement and social betterment, but the staving off, as John Gray puts it, of ever-present evils, foremost among which is the avoidance of civil strife. And you find the same kinds of things throughout the kind of conservative pamphlets, leaders' speeches and all the kind of things I've spent the last few weeks in the Western Library analysing. Um, This kind of echo of the idea of a limited but strong state whose first duty is the protection of its citizens. Now this seems to me is entangled in interesting ways with the priority that conservatives give to the concept of order. And to understand that, I think you need to recognise that, no, that while conservatives believe in freedom, and they believe in the um, they believe in the individual, conservatism is not first and foremost, <coughs> unlike liberalism, a philosophy of individual freedom. So, in relation to. Um, so, in relation to questions of freedom, uh, the conservative view of these things is yes. No, the balance between order and freedom requires constant vigilance and attention, and that's what politics is ultimately about. But we should be clear, the order comes first. That takes priority where there's a dispute between the two of them. And similarly, we need to remember that conservatism isn't first and foremost a philosophy of individualism. It's a philosophy of attachment to place, of belonging to families, neighbourhoods, communities, nations, to some conception of a home. And John Gray, as a quote from John Gray, which is very nice, he said before anything else, he says, before even, even freedom, human beings need a home, a sense of home. Now, the reason why I think this matters, because it both accounts for the, the, both the priority that conservatives give to a concept of order and the particular way in which it then get that concept gets fleshed out, because i don 't think in the conservative world view order reduces to anemic and operational sounding terms like safety or protection there's always something much more going on, and that much more has to do with the attachment to and preservation of certain kinds of valued places and Valued sources of um, belonging, whether they be no, whether they be home or family or neighbourhood or nation or some conception of the people and so on. And I think that makes order for conservatives, um, in some really deep and important sense, a kind of boundary drawing exercise. When you think about order, you're thinking about questions of who we are, um, what we believe in, what are what are the boundaries of us, who threatens us. And so on and so forth. So it becomes a very rich and resonant and always symbolically loaded um, question, which has in, which circulates around the idea that it has something to do with our shared home. Now there are all kinds of things I'll say about that. I just want to say um, one, um, and that is I think this helps to explain um, something that's uh, if, you, if you read conservative publications on these over the years, um, strikes you very um, um, immediately, which is the kind of primacy that conservatives give to the police and the special affection that that institution um, um, possesses within the conservative conception of order. So when crime is an issue, that it seems that there's something conser- that the conservatives will instinctively reach for this institution. And that, that idea that we must, back, we, we must back the police is a kind of resonant and recurring theme of all kinds of conservative literature, manifesto statements, pamphlets from, the 19, or from 1964 onwards, when I first noticed that it appears. And it generally means two things. Um, firstly, that we can be trusted to give material backing to this institution... And in the end, only we as conservatives can be trusted to do this, to provide more more officers, more power, more equipment, more training and so on and so forth. But as importantly, that they can be relied upon for our support. We will attend to questions of their morale. We will protect them from their critics. We will reassure them that they are doing a valued job on our behalf and, the, and so on and so forth. And those are, that, that is also a kind of resonant theme. Now... As, as anyone who's thought about these for two minutes will realise, um, that hasn't stopped conservative administrations from being virulent critics of the police at various points in the last two decades and in various places, various times also making attempts to take them on, to change them, to modernise them and so on and so forth. All that is true, and I've written about that somewhere else, um, but it remains the case that that sits alongside a kind of effective commitment to what you might call the idea of policing, or to what um, Agan Mulcahy and me called the uh, police force of the imagination, um, which, operate, which continues to possess a kind of special place within conservative conceptions of order, precisely because what it is imagined as is both a line between civilization and chaos, or, slightly less dramatically, as a kind of comforting, reassuring um, source of authority in everyday life, And an institution that seems to have a kind of essentially conservative mission, i.e. to protect and preserve things that we value, whether they be our safety, our streets, our homes, our communities, our nation, and um, so on and so forth. Right. Okay. Um, Up until this point, um, the underlying paper looked like that. Um, (laughs) From this point onwards, it looks like that, (laughs) Um, which doesn't mean I haven't thought about it. Um, It just means I haven't written it all down in neat sentences yet, but still. um, We're on to phase two. I think it would be a mistake to think um, that conservatives lack enthusiasm for the other institutions which they instinctively reach for at times of social crisis and rising crime and violence and so on, namely um, the institution of punishment and, in particular, um, the prison. There is a further cliché about British politics. The Conservative Party members, backbenchers, Daily Mail readers um, can salivate excitedly at the thought of some of their co-citizens getting punished and are extremely enthusiastic for there to be more of it, for it to be harsher, more austere, nasty and so on and so forth. And I don't want to say that that kind of visceral emotional enthusiasm for punishment hasn't been part of um, contemporary Conservative politics. It's true to say that the return of the Conservatives of Power in 1979 coincided with, among other things, the return of a language of retribution and deterrence to, to discussions of punishment, to return to debates about capital punishment in um, Parliament for a few years, to the reintroduction of short, sharp shop regimes in young offenders' institutions. In the 1990s, um, Michael Howe, when he was then so Secretary, enthusiastically declared that prison works, as he liked to say, um, and set about making penalties stiffer, making prison regimes more austere, and so on and so forth. Um, So I don't want to... Everything that follows needs to be prefaced by the claim that that, no, at at times of rising crime and violence and crisis, um, Conservatives will be resolute and stern in the idea that one of the things that such crises require is the imposition of sovereign penal control. That having been said, I think to, to, to leave the conservative account of punishment there is to, is to produce an account which is, which is kind of partial and risks forever lapsing into um, caricature because alongside those enthusiasms, I think you're also finding conservative writings about, about prisons and punishment, a kind of ongoing ambivalence about the institution of the prison in particular, um, which has often made conservatives in practical politics critiques of the prison system and um, advocates of penal um, reform. It is also the case that the kind of moralising story about crime which conservatives tell has as one of its implications the idea that there is something futile about thinking you can do anything about crime using the institutions of police and punishment because its sources lie in Um, the socialising institutions of civil society and that therefore that's also where its remedies need to be located. In other words, there are things in conservative philosophy that kind of temper that enthusiasm for punishment, um, which are both specifically criminological and have also something to do with a kind of scepticism about the state and about government as a solution to social problems, which animates conservative um, thought. And I want to say a few words about both of those um, things. So um, it's a kind of um, close to being an axiom of conservative philosophy um, that government should not be considered to be a kind of source of social betterment, um, an institution trying constantly to engineer progress, um, shouldn't be the source of endless innovation and so on and so on but it should be an institution about which we should train ourselves to think sceptically and expect, expect less of. In other words, it's an institution that is somehow mired in cluelessness, it consistently fails to deliver, is beset by unintended consequences of various kinds. In other words, the, what is required in relation to our thinking about governments is a certain kind of lowering of our expectation, which is why... Um, this kind of quote from Michael Oakeshott, um, which is on the board behind me, kind of rather captures that kind of stop thinking, stop thinking that things are going to get better, um, we need to quieten you all down um, and philosophy of government, which I think um, is central to conservative um, philosophy. Now, why this matters in this context, I think, because it does help generate what you might describe as a certain, uh, a certain kind of penal prudence in conservative thinking about punishment in general and prisons in particular, um, which, which kind of um, manifests itself in the constant iteration of both um, the futility of prison, the sense that there really should be an institution of last resort, the idea that it really is no place for people with mental illness and so on and so forth. And that, that is a kind of recurring sub-theme of lots of conservative political writing about prisons in the last 30 or 40 years which has occasionally found its expressions in, um, in actual government policy. There was a two, at least two periods in the 1980s, for example, when reducing the prison population became the explicit aim of conservative administrations, attended in the late 1980s in a government white paper by the famous phrase prisons are an expensive way of making bad people worse. This also generates, I think, a kind of routine and recurring attention to what's going on inside prisons, On the understanding that from a conservative perspective, what's wrong with prisons is that they are places of irresponsibility and enforced demoralising idleness. Hence, again, a constant and returning concern to try and both limit the damage that prisons can do and try and make them places in which um, offenders can engage in work, can be treated decently, and in its latest iteration under Michael Gove, can be. Um, opened up to certain forms of change and um, redemption the second element of um, conservative philosophy which I think kind of tempers this enthusiasm for punishment um, and, and and kind of demand of conservatives that they kind of look beyond the penal field for sources of order and control um, also I think flows from a, from a kind of axiom or central concept of conservative thought. And this is basically the twin idea that we ought not to think of government as the solution to problems. Often we should think of it as the problem itself. And that what government has done over the course of the 20, latter half of the 20th century Is take responsibility for things that ought properly to be left to the institutions of um, civil society, whether they be families, neighbourhoods, voluntary effort of various um, kinds. So one finds in Conservative policy a theory of politics, as Roger Scruton has recently articulated it, which thinks of the task to kind of limit the size and scope of the state and expand the size and scope of um, civil society. Now this has two payoffs, two recurring payoffs in relation to conservative discourse about crime. First is the idea that the causes of crime and the sources of order lie beyond the control of government and criminal law and the penal realm. The second is the idea, which I flagged up earlier, um, that when we think about how to prevent or socialise or inculcate um, individuals with, with restraint, with impulse control, with character, or whatever you want to describe it, the appropriate institutions for doing that are the intermediate institutions of civil society, not the agents of the, the agents of control in the state, families, churches, neighbourhood groups, teachers, and so on and so forth. And at various points, again, in the last several decades, some variants of those themes have occurred, um, both in relation to the, what Pat O'Malley rather pejoratively called "responsibilisation" in the 1980s when we were all being encouraged to believe that, that responsibility for the prevention of crime was somehow um, a requirement of all of us as citizens, as people who work in universities or hospitals or schools and so on and so forth. Um, and in the recent um, and iteration of the big society, which some of you may remember was an enthusiasm of David Cameron's for several years. Well, it now remains so in his new job. Um, um, and arguably also in relation to police and crime commissioners. And what you find in relation to all those things is in a sense um, uh, a kind of a set of practices um, about which many people have been sceptical because they look like cover for things like austerity but actually have deep roots in a kind of anti-statist localism which is a central part of um, conservative ideology. Right. Right. I want to end with a, a question. Um, I, I, Alpa kindly pointed out at the beginning that the, the wider project of which this is a part is called "In Search of a Better Politics of Crime." Um, um, I should, should now become apparent that there's something about um, the searching for a better politics of crime which is a fundamentally non-conservative thing um, to do, um, and therefore the question that I've been posing in the middle, of, in the context of writing all this, is what, what is a project whose ambition is to search for resources for a better politics of crime, to do with or capable of finding in um, conservative political ideology. Now, I'm, I was sorely tempted, hence the question marks, um, I was sorely tempted um, about two hours ago just to sit down at this point and say, help, no, <laughs> you, you answer that question for me. Um, but I, I will say um, one or two things. Um, the, the first... All right, the first takes me back to the point I was making in relation to Donald Trump's election as president um, at the beginning. The one, the, the one reason why you might want to wrestle with conservatism and the kind of emotional and cultural appeal of certain kinds of conservative stories or nostrums or concepts around crime from a non-conservative perspective is just to engage in the task of trying to understand what is the nature, what is the nature of the appeal of those ideas and claims for so many millions of um, people and I don't think I've necessarily got a good answer to that um, though one of them might just have something to do with um, the capacity of conservative ideology to tap into some deep rooted um, needs that human beings have to belong to feel attached to something greater themselves, to feel that they have a home and the capacity of conservatism to to mobilise, the, um, to mobilise and think about crime and more lately migration in relation to those series of, of concerns. I've not put that very well, um, but I think that so trying to just understand um, the appeal of a certain set of sensibilities seems to be one one answer to to that question. Um, the second is that we can just go. I can just now go into fully fledged critic mode and point out all the all. All the to go into a kind of critical dialogue with, with that set, that world view, which points out um, some of its consequences and blind spots, um, it's, its constant tendency to over-identify with authority, to not speak very much about questions of race and gender and so on and so forth. One could do that. The third possibility, and um, I guess the most challenging one, is to wonder actually whether there's anything positive that you would extract from conservative philosophy for that wider project? Um, and I'm not sure I know I have a good answer to that question, but it might have something to do with wanting to um, hold on to some of that kind of scepticism about state projects, about the capacity of punishment to achieve its goals and so on and so forth, without lapsing into the miserablest idea that you can never put reason to the service of making the world a better place, because I'm not ready to give up on that. Thank you.